in a book entitled The Pilgrim's Progress, which some of you may be familiar with, and you should read it if you haven't. There was a point at which Christian, who is the main character of the story, and Hopeful, who was his friend, found themselves locked in a castle of giant despair. The giant, whose name was Despair, beat them, threatened their lives, and even taunted them to take their own lives. Christian considered this. He considered taking his own life in order to find release from giant despair. However, his friend Hopeful frequently encouraged him. On the night before they were sure that giant despair was going to kill them, Christian remembered that he had a key in his pocket. And he said this was a key that was sure to unlock any door in the castle of giant despair. And the name of the key was Promise. He used the key called Promise to unlock their chains and the doors of the castle of giant despair, and they eventually walked out of the castle and returned again to the right path on the way to the celestial city. Well, the allegory should be clear. Christians will at times find themselves in the throes of despair as they encounter various trials, whether those trials are, in the case of Christian and Bunyan's story, as a result of poor choices that we make, or whether those trials are as a result of us living in a fallen world. We know that life is hard, tribulation is hard, trials do indeed test our faith. Sometimes those trials weigh us down to the degree that we feel trapped as if we are in the dungeon of giant despair. In addition to prayer, which we considered last week as a tool that God has given us to call upon him for help when we need it, just as Christian and hopeful, we also have the key to releasing ourselves from being imprisoned by despair. We have the promises of God. The promises of God are necessary commodities as we walk through life in order to avoid lingering long in the castle of giant despair. And in this next section, chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, James will share with us four promises that we can hold on to in the midst of our trials. Four promises we can hold on to in the midst of our trials. Well, I'll read for you again James chapter 1 for context as we have been. And we'll focus in on verses 9 through 18. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. As Jesus prayed, you sanctify us by your truth. We ask that you would open up our eyes this morning that we might behold wonderful things from your truth. I ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Again, James provides us with four promises to remember in the midst of our trials. In verses 9 through 11, we see that God works through trials without partiality. In verse 12, we see that God promises to bless our fidelity. In verses 13 through 15, we see that God tempts no one to immorality. And in verses 16 through 18, we see that God gives only good to his family. He works through trials without partiality. He promises to bless fidelity. He tempts no one to immorality, and he gives only good things to his family. Let's look at the first point. God works through trials without partiality. Again, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Remember that James is addressing an audience that is no stranger to trials. The believers whom he is addressing have suffered in various ways, and his desire is to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. James has spoken in broad terms up until this point. He has encouraged them to think differently about their trials. Trials will come. A life free of trials for the Christian is never promised. What we need is not first to get out of our trials, but rather we need the benefit that trials produce, which is endurance. It's an enduring faith. We need a faith that endures, a faith that will endure to the end so that we can receive what God has promised for those who have an enduring faith. An enduring faith is a faith that works an enduring faith is, a faith is a faith that displays its works no matter the circumstances. That is what James is commending to the believers as he begins this letter. And again, he talks through many of the different themes in chapter 1 that he's going to be talking about throughout the rest of the letter. Again, all of us will have trials. One of the major themes in this letter is the relationship between the poor and the rich. That's something that the people that James was addressing dealt with often. And that's even to the degree that the rich are often seen as oppressors of the poor, or at least not helpers of the poor. If that is the case, one might wonder, and perhaps James is trying to address this question for the believers, one might wonder if it is only the poor that receive such treatment from God. Is it only the poor who are enduring trials? And James addresses that in these couple of verses, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> he refers to those who are lowly or poor in the context and to those who are rich. Both in the context are believers and both have to learn how to endure trials. They may have a different perspective for each in the midst of their trials, 
But they will both endure trials nonetheless, for God works through our trials without partiality. It doesn't matter to him if a believer is financially secure or not. Their faith must still be tested and refined through the fires of trials. Looking at verse 9, again, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The reference to lowly, again, is a reference to poverty. To be sure, some of the Christians in James' day suffered poverty. It could have simply been the family into which they were born. In many cases, there simply were not opportunities to achieve a greater economic status than the family you were born in. It could have been the nature of their faith in Christ, having been ostracized from their community for their faith in Christ. Whatever the reason, they were lowly, as he refers to them. They had been brought low. They were poor. To these, James says that they are to boast in their exaltation. Well, what in the world is that supposed to mean? Simply put, the poor had nothing going for them, humanly speaking. In the eyes of the world, they simply would have been destitute, broken. They should have been depressed and downhearted, and perhaps some of them were. This could be a source of shame for those who are poor. They have had little, and the little that they did have came with great difficulty. And sometimes in those situations, it's hard not to think of anything else. Those who are poor may be like Christian and hopeful, locked away in the castle of giant despair. But James says, remember that you are suffering. And that your trials as a believer are evidence not of God's displeasure with you, but of God's work in your life. He is actively at work to mature your faith. That is a reminder that you belong to him, that he has brought you forth by the word of truth. Therefore, he is working all things together for your good. He's bringing you to a mature faith through that which you are suffering. No, your suffering is not for nothing. It is not going to be wasted. Contrary to the contrary, it is a part of God's grace to you because it's a part of how he's working to mature your faith. Remember what Jeremiah said, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 9, 24. You who are lowly may boast because your suffering is evidence that you have the most important thing going for you. You know the Lord. He knows you, and he is at work in your life to strengthen your faith. Well, God works in our trials without partiality. If he is at work in the lives of those who are his, who are poor, certainly he works in the lives of those who are rich. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, James says, and the rich in his humiliation. If the lowly or the poor should boast in their exaltation, then the rich should boast in their humiliation. Well, what does that mean? Look again at the text. He says, like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. James is using those analogies from nature again to underscore his point. A flower of the grass withers under the scorching heat of the sun. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. Or perhaps you have squirrels in your backyard that like to eat all of your flowers. I mean, either way, the flower is going to die is the point. The lives of flowers are temporary. The slightest change in their environment can disrupt their life cycle and cause their demise. Part of the problem with the rich is that they assume that their riches are their security. That is why the rich are often not satisfied with their riches. They want more because they believe that having more means more security or perhaps that having more will yield more respect and privilege in life. They lean on the security of their riches when in fact the security of their riches is just like a flower of the field. The slightest change in the environment can lead to its downfall. A bad investment here or there, the stock market crash, a housing market crash, a loss of a job. There are many ways in which the rich can suffer. James says they should boast in this. They should boast because they're being humbled by God. It is a precarious thing to trust in one's riches. It's like the story in Luke 12 of the rich man who boasted in his riches, who tore down his smaller barns as he viewed them and built larger barns assuming that his wealth would allow him to relax to sit back eat drink and be merry not knowing that that very night his soul would be required of him James says if you're rich and you're trusting in your riches and the Lord humbles you by removing that idol from you you should boast you should be glad 
because otherwise you'll be like that flower of the field which passes away and fades away in the midst of your pursuits. For those of you who are wealthy, which in relation to the rest of the world, I think most of us are wealthy. Remember that your wealth is not that which gives you security, but rather it is knowing the Lord that is your security. Moreover, your wealth is not merely for your benefit, but rather it is, and this is Psalm 67, which we've also looked at at some point in the past. You have been materially blessed so that the ends of the earth may fear the Lord. So use your wealth to see that the gospel goes forth, that the church of Jesus Christ continues to grow and be established. Then you won't have to worry as you see it go because you know it'll be going for a good purpose to bring glory to your Savior. Paul said this at the end of 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, again, God is at work in our trials without partiality. It doesn't matter if we have much or little. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Sometimes we grow discouraged as we consider our own situation and look around at others. Again, that was the problem that Asaph suffered with. He was looking around at others in Psalm 73. Sometimes we may think that we have it worse than other people, that God has given us a more significant trials than others. But the reality is you have no idea what God is doing in someone else's life. You have no idea what they have gone through or what they are going through. As much as they may smile and snap all those pictures on Instagram that shows a smiling face and a wonderful life and, you know, all these wonderful things that they're doing and enjoying, you have no idea how awful they may be on the inside and how difficult their life may be, how lonely they usually are, even though they try to put that best foot forward. And they smile in front of other people's. We all have our own race before God. We should not be comparing ourselves with others. God is at work in each one of us who are believers. You can count on that. And that is something that we can count on as a promise to encourage us as we continue. God is at work. Second point in verse 12. God promises to bless fidelity, faithfulness. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promises to those who love him. This is probably one of the most significant verses in the whole of chapter 1. Trials, difficulty, suffering hangs as a shroud over the whole letter of James. He is addressing a people who are suffering in many different ways. He's writing to encourage them in the midst to persevere in their faith. Do not fall away. Your faith in the Lord Jesus the one who brought you forth by the word of truth, your faith is a faith that works, is a faith that endures and that is lived out no matter what the circumstances. Keep pressing forward, beloved. The Christian faith is inherently hopeful because it looks forward to the hope of the reconciliation of all things. Yes, we have been saved. We have been redeemed, but there's a future redemption, a future hope to which our faith points. There's a future grace to which our faith points. The apostles all had the same perspective. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Listen, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's something more coming. He says in chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, chapter 2, verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we have experienced this verse always blows my mind. We have experienced the mercy and grace and love of God today already by faith in Jesus Christ. But there's something more coming. 
he says that we can look forward to the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness, God's kindness, poured out on us in Christ in the ages to come. There's more. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The aches and pains that we deal with today, beloved, the doctor's appointments, the weakness, the disease, the sickness, the frailty, all of that is going to be done away with. We have that to look forward to. Because he's going to give us a new body. A new glorious body. Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our life is not just what we see here around us and what we experienced here today. Our life, those of us who come to faith in Christ, those of us who have been raised up with him, our life is Jesus Christ. That's why it's eternal life, because he lives forever. couple more blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ I've read a lot of Paul this is Peter according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead born again to what verse four to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That was a bit of a mouthful. It's chapter 1 of 1 Peter. But we've been born again to an inheritance. And this inheritance Peter describes as imperishable. I mean, it's like, you know, we talk about perishable goods versus imperishable goods. It has shelf life. <laughs> the shelf life of this inheritance is eternal. It's undefiled. It's not polluted by sin. It's not weakened by sin. There's no defect in it. Unfading, it will never end this inheritance. Kept in heaven for you. God is holding it in heaven for you. And not only that, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. He's keeping the inheritance for you, and he's keeping you for that inheritance. And it's going to be revealed in the last time. You'll see it when you get there. But you will see it, and you will have it. He says later in that chapter, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep your mind there. Set your affections there. Set your hope there on what is to come. John, from 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Those five words are another five words that completely blow me away every time I read them. We shall be like him. Listen, whatever you struggle with today, whatever sin is, is, we'll talk about sin in just a moment, a little bit more, but whatever sin you're struggling with today, whatever work of unrighteousness is just, you know, it's, 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 it's wearing your soul down. Whatever sin you see around you that wears your soul down, whatever difficulty you're encountering today as a believer, there's going to be a day when you are made like Jesus and holiness and righteousness when you will have a perfect love for God 
then you won't have to worry or struggle anymore. I think it was, uh, and I can't remember the guy's name now, um, but he wrote a song, and there's this one line in the song where he says something to the effect that rest from myself <laughs> will be the greatest rest I've ever known, and just talking about this, and he's talking about the struggle that he has with sin or against sin in that song, but that'll be the sweetest rest I've ever known. Sometimes I get tired of myself. I'm just speaking honestly. My foolish thoughts, my laziness, my wicked thoughts, I get tired of it. And I look forward to the day when I'm finally and fully made like Jesus. We who have been born again by the grace of God through faith in the salvation provided in Christ have this future hope, this future grace to look forward to. And that's what James is talking about in verse 12. Again, he says, blessed is the man. And this calls back to the beatitudes that Jesus offered in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the man. We are blessed of God. We are blessed, he says, if we remain steadfast under trial. We remain steadfast under trial. Our faith doesn't waver, but to the contrary, we continue to live out our faith in the midst of trial. But why are we blessed? Listen to what he says further. For when he has stood the test, he will receive receive the crown of life which God has promised for those who love him. Again, James is trying to to point our attention forward. He says there is something coming. If you remain steadfast under trial, something is coming for you. There is a blessing coming that you don't have yet today, but you will have in the future if you remain steadfast. When he has stood the test, again, meaning when he has proven himself steadfast under trial, steadfastly faithful under trial, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. To say it another way, God has promised to give the crown of life to those who love him, and those who remain steadfast under trial will receive the crown of life. Therefore, it is those who remain steadfast under trial who prove that they love God, and for this reason, God will reward them. His promise, the promise of the crown of life is for them. It's not for those who fall away. It's not for the unfaithful. It is for the faithful, for those who have an enduring kind of faith, a faith that works, that remains steadfast under trial. Do you get that? God is promising to bless our faithfulness to him, our love for him as we show our love for him, regardless of what's going on in life. We abide in him in the midst of our trials. Do you want that promise of God? Do you want that blessing? Well, you must remain steadfast under trial, James says. We've seen it happen time and time again. People fall away when things are hard. They curse God. They blame God. They curse and blame other people. They become bitter, angry. They drift away from the fellowship of other believers. They find themselves in the castle of giant despair, lost and alone. Remember the primary way that God gives us wisdom to persevere. He gives us wisdom through his word. We looked at Psalm 119 last week. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How do we know how to move forward? How do we know where to place our feet to move forward? We have to remember the promises of God. If you find yourself in the castle of giant despair or otherwise struggling to remain steadfast in the midst of trials, if you can't remember anything, just remember the first chapter of James. That God is at work through your trials. He's building your character. That we can and we need to pray for wisdom. And that we have all of his promises to hold on to. Now just a quick note on what is referred to as the crown of life. I think a lot of people have misunderstood this. But I don't think we're talking about a physical crown here. That's not James's point. He's using this terminology as an analogy. The crown here is just a euphemistic way of speaking of the blessing of life, the blessing of eternal life. And it's really all of what we said 
before, those other verses that I, I read to you earlier. It's our final redemption. It's the riches of his kindness poured out on us for all eternity. It's a new glorified body. It's appearing with Christ in glory. It's being made like Jesus in the end. It's an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's the grace that will be brought to us of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the sum total of all of those things that God promises to give to those who love him. James is putting that forward as a promise for us to hold on to so that we can persevere in the midst of our trials. There will be a reward. Again, in this text, there are four promises for us to hold on to in the midst of our trials. God is at work in our trials without partiality. God promises to bless our fidelity. Third, God tempts no one to immorality. Look at verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God brings this trial into my life. He brings this testing, and I respond poorly. Emotional responses are not wrong. We've talked about that before. It's not wrong to be sad when you're going through difficulty or even to have anxiety from time to time. These things are not sin and of themselves. When we are sad or discouraged, when we're anxious, we're instructed to turn our attention from that inner turmoil to the Lord. We're instructed to learn to lean on him, to be thankful, to rest in his truth and his promises. The problem comes in when we allow that discouragement and anxiety to continue to fester. The problem is when we fall into deep despair and become bitter and angry or when we lash out at others in the midst of our trials or again in response to our trials when we turn away from the word, away from the people of God, away from the Lord. Often what precipitates those times is the thought that somehow this is really God's fault. I mean, he's the one who brought this difficulty into our life to begin with, right? He has the power to fix it. If he doesn't, then he's just mean. That's the way we think about it. The reality is that we often want to find someone else to blame and some other reason why we have taken a turn for the worse in such cases. The common consensus in the world today is that humanity is basically good. We all start out basically good, and it is our environment. It's our parents. It's our neighborhood. It's some chemical imbalance that turns us bad or wicked. Never mind that you never have to teach a child how to cry, fuss, fight, throw a tantrum when they don't get their way. You don't have to teach a child how to lie when they get into trouble. You don't have to teach a child how to take something that doesn't belong to them when they want it really badly. We don't teach our children these things any more than we, or the environment for that matter, teach a thief to rob a store or a teenager to lie to his parents about where they were late at night. And we don't have to teach an enraged driver how to do road rage. It's because the problem is the sin in our own hearts. One author said it this way, we live in a world where there are efforts at every turn to absolve us from our responsibility. We want to put the fault on others or blame our upbringing, our friends, our family, our government, our condition, or anything else we can think of. This doesn't mean that factors don't affect us all in different ways. But the teaching of scripture is clear. The fault for my sin lies with me. End quote. And certainly there are factors that add to things that happen in life. And there is the sin of other people that does affect us. But ultimately, when we sin, it's because we have wickedness in our own hearts. James says God would never tempt you to commit immorality. He would never tempt you to sin. To the contrary, it is the sin of your own hearts that's a problem. Verse 13, again, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. No matter how difficult the trial, it's not okay to blame your sinful response on God. These are facts about the nature and character of God, James gives us. God cannot be tempted with evil. Why is that true? That's true because God is true. He is the standard of what is good and right and true, and he is content in that. As James will say shortly, temptation comes when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. We sin because we're not content with the way things are and what we have. That cannot be said about God. He is content in all of what he has and all of who he is. 
He needs nothing. Evil cannot tempt one who is perfectly happy in himself, by himself. To Moses, he revealed himself as the I am, meaning he simply is. He is a self-existent, uncaused cause of all things. He depends on no one and nothing but himself for existence. He truly needs nothing. God is content. He is sufficiently satisfied in himself alone. Again, James goes on. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. God will never bring a trial into your life in order to entice you. That is a truth that we can count on. As we've already said, to the contrary, the Lord brings trials into your life to strengthen your faith because he knows that the testing of your faith leads to endurance. And endurance leads to a mature faith. And a mature faith leads to the crown of life. It is a desire of your heavenly father to bless you, not to harm you. Temptation, which in this context is definitively the desire for that which is sinful, comes as a result of, again, what's in our own hearts. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Jesus said in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. And James says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person has desires in their heart. Each person has particular desires that they struggle with. Your desires may not be the same as your neighbor, but you certainly have desires which you can be lured and enticed by. This, of course, underscores a need for grace in dealing with others who are in sin. One author said it this way, what one person finds as an intense temptation, another person may never experience as even a faint enticement and vice versa. Temptations are tailored to the individual and so we as believers must never belittle a person for struggling with something that we think as inane. Instead, we must realize that each of us has particular battles nuanced specifically for us and we need to give both grace and exhortation to one another to stand firm in times of testing, end quote. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter one, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch over yourselves lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ even the purpose of church discipline which we've talked about before is for restoration it's not to shame an individual it's to help restore them to the faith all of us struggle with some sin James says that our desires lure us away and entice us The word translated lure is a word that can be used to describe the process of hauling a fish on a fishing line. Once they're hooked, all you have to do is drag them in. I don't know any fish that comes willingly once they're snagged on the line. The word for entice is a word that can be used to describe the process of lying down bait to catch an animal in a trap. Whether you're considering the luring or enticing, the point is the same. The one who is lured and enticed is lured and enticed by their own desires. There's something in their heart that they want, that they crave. In this context, it's usually something they should not want or crave. But that desire, though it may begin as a small desire, usually ends up entangling them, ensnaring them. Again, another quote, James forces us to take an honest look at the desires and thoughts that we foster and allow to grow within ourselves, tugging at us and alluring us. Many sinful actions begin as casual thoughts, but dwelling on them can turn minor temptations into major transgressions. I think that's important to think on. Many sinful actions begin as casual thoughts, but dwelling on them can turn minor temptations into major transgressions. Regardless of what the TV and movies say, no one ever commits adultery on a whim, ever. No one ever steals something based on a momentary whim. No one ever commits murder on a whim. Every one of these things began with a thought at some point in their lives. The adultery may have begun years prior as a fleeting consideration of lust due to some image or television or the internet. Thievery began as a momentary thought of jealousy of that really cool jacket that my friend had in school. Murder began, again, maybe years prior as a flash of anger over the actions of someone else. Any one of these thoughts, if left unchecked, left to fester, left to dwell on, 
left to fan into flames through time, will themselves become monsters that ensnare us and lead us down a path of greater sin. The writer of Hebrews refers to the weight and sin which so easily entangles us. Listen to the process that James describes in verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Those desires in our hearts that we often ignore, those desires that are in practice viewed as acceptable sins, because no one else hears or sees what's going on in my mind, right? So it's okay. Those acceptable sins, those errant sinful desires in our hearts never stay in our hearts. They always lead somewhere. Again, that's the experience of Asaph in Psalm 73. He was tempted to envy the wicked. He looked at them in their wickedness and his thoughts led him down a path that almost, he said, caused his foot to stumble until he was exposed to the truth of God. He said, until I came to the sanctuary. And that's ultimately what we need for our minds, for our hearts. In Philippians 4, we're told to think on what is good and right and true. Paul says in Corinthians that we must take every thought captive. That principle should apply here. We must not allow any errant thought to linger in our mind. We must not allow any wicked desire to fester in our minds because they always lead somewhere. When we have those thoughts, those desires, we must commit them to the Lord. This is particularly one of those things that we must labor in prayer for. We must pray and seek the Lord to help us with our desires. The Word of God says to flee immorality. This includes immorality of our thoughts. Flee them. Don't trust them. Don't let them live in your minds for too long. That we have them is an unfortunate part of us living in a fallen world within the confines of flesh that still desires contrary to the spirit, that we have them is just a part of that. We have to take steps to ensure that we don't continue to follow them, but instead that our minds are transformed by the truth of God, as Paul says in Romans 12. Someone once said that we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. I'll I love this passage in Titus chapter 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. He says that the grace of God is, teaches us, trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions or desires. It's the grace of God that helps us with that. So we have to keep ourselves in the grace of God. We have to remind ourselves of the grace of God. We have to keep ourselves in the love of God, as Jude says, by reminding ourselves of the truth. We will struggle at times with sin in our minds and our hearts. Sometimes it will feel overwhelming, but God's word is greater than that. And when we feel overwhelmed, I'll just remind you again that our life of faith is lived in community. Sometimes we just need to go to someone else and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Would you pray with me? And not be too proud. God works through our trials without partiality. God promises to bless our fidelity. God tempts none to immorality. Finally, God gives only good to his family. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He says, listen up, pay close attention. You're in danger of thinking incorrectly about God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Reminiscent again of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 11. Again, Jesus referred to God as the Father who gives good things to his children. James says he is the Father of lights. Your heavenly Father knows how to give good things to his children. There's no variation or shadow due to change in him. His goodness knows no end. His desire to do good for his children knows no end. If you were to watch someone standing in the middle of a court outside on a sunny day, you would see their shadow moving throughout the course of the day with the passing of time. In the case of God, there is no change. Time does not change him. He's not affected by it. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We always say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. One author said it this way, God's benevolence is like a light which cannot be extinguished, eclipsed, or shadowed out in any way. The light of the sun may be blocked, for example, by some material object so as to cast a shadow. Indeed, for a time in an eclipse, the direct light of the sun or moon may be shut off from the observer. Nothing like that can block God's light, interrupt the flow of his goodness, or put us in shadow so that we are out of reach of his radiance. There's no way. If that wasn't clear enough, James continues. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The greatest gift that could ever be given by God to humanity is the gift of salvation in his son. He sent his only son into a world that his son created and which subsequently rejected him. He sent his son into a world to live a holy and righteous life, to be betrayed, to suffer, to die as a substitute for our sins. And finally, to rise again victorious over sin and death. On the basis of the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus, we have been brought forth by the word of truth. This is, again, reminiscent of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. We were brought forth of God's will. This was God's decision. He consulted no one when he provided the new birth. He asked no one for permission. He took no one's counsel. Again, Ephesians chapter 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He works all things after the counsel of his will. God decided to do this for us on his own. For his purposes. James says, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The concept of first fruits is a first of a harvest of many. We are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Consider the many blessings bestowed on us as a result of this salvation. Again, we have been forgiven of our sins. We've been reconciled to God by the blood of his son. We've been brought into his new family through this new birth. We have been given every spiritual blessing. Even our suffering is redeemed. Now that we are a part of God's family and we have forward to look, we have to look forward to the redemption, our full redemption, our final redemption tomorrow. And Jesus, the one who in whom we have been redeemed, Jesus, the son of God, was sent for this very purpose to redeem us, to save us from our sins. God sent the best to us. He is a merciful and faithful high priest, the writer of Hebrews says. God didn't just send us anyone. He sent us the faithful one, the righteous one. He sent us one who would be tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He sent us the one who suffered in a way that we will never understand. And we talk about the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross, that physical suffering. Yes, that's suffering. But the reality is that Jesus suffered as a righteous man. We are not righteous. We suffer as unrighteous people, as those who do not deserve good. You understand that, right? And we, we, we sometimes go off because of the injustices that we face. Even though we don't deserve good, we want good. But Jesus deserved good. Can you think of how, how incredibly burdensome that must have been for him knowing that he did everything his father asked him to do he was always right he was blameless in every sense of the word and yet he hung on a criminal's cross that's suffering that's something you and I will never understand but Jesus bore that for us and because he bore that kind of suffering, because he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, we can go to him now when we suffer and we struggle and we are burdened with sin and we're trying to figure out how to make it through. In fact, the word of God says that we should go to him now because he is a merciful and faithful high priest and he will not turn us away. But we can go to him when we need help and we can say, Lord Jesus, I know that you understand suffering. You understand the burden of sin. And I need your help. And he'll give us the help that we need. 
it can sympathize with our weaknesses. These are all things that are a result of the Father bringing us forth by the word of truth. And if he's done that, what more does God need to prove to you that he is for you? God gives only good things to his family. He's given the greatest good to his family. He's given us himself in the person of his son. If that is true, then no matter how difficult your trials may be, you can be sure that God will, again, in Paul's words in Romans 8, cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Well, if you ever find yourself sitting in the dungeon of the castle of giant despair in the midst of suffering, remember that you always have the key to escape. And the key to escape the castle of giant despair is the promises of God. God works through trials without partiality. God promises to bless our fidelity. God tempts no one to immorality, and God gives only good to his family. These are promises from his word, promises that you can count on, promises to bring you out of despair into a place of joy as you rest in the truth of who he is as your good and gracious heavenly father, as you think on these things for your good and for his glory. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctify us. We pray that you would do your sanctifying work in our hearts this morning as we consider these promises and the reality of who you are. Father, help us to meditate on these truths, the truths of who you are, no matter what is happening in our lives, and help us in faith to live out that faith. And to live out the joy that we can have in your spirit. As we know that you are working all things together for our good. Even if we can't see it or understand it. Help us to trust. That you as our good and gracious heavenly father are working for our good. And that you will complete the good work that you began. We pray this in Jesus blessed name. Amen.